I don't think people in the country like have a full uh, consciousness of like the amount of developmental delay that happens with kids in this country fundamentally related to like inappropriate nutrition. It's a variant of malnutrition with it's not just obesity engendering, it's like literally prevents effective brain development. And we are growing a massive population of people uh, who are kids that never had a full chance. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Did you blow your mom off about nutrition in high school? So did Jay Langhire, our guest today. But now he's the CEO and founder of FoodSmart, a leading telenutrition platform. FoodSmart combines dietitian, meal planning, and food option in one platform. This combination makes it easier for people to get nutritious and affordable food, both for themselves and their families. Today, FoodSmart has over 1.5 million members and serving over 700 employers. Their goal is to eliminate food insecurity and malnutrition nationwide. And above all, to make healthy food accessible to everyone. But for Jay, getting there was a journey. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for joining me this morning. Uh, good to see you, Christine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, um, it's a good sunny day in San Francisco um, where we both are based. You have quite a collection of uh, degrees from so many di- different amazing school. But I thought before we dive into many different things, it's like, can you tell us a bit your maybe personal background, like your journey to get to where you are today? Why, you know, start this company as well? Sure. Put smart. Yeah. Um, my personal journey, I grew up in uh, a rural part of Buffalo. Um, and um, yeah, I think a defining part of, of my growing up was that um, I came from a blue collar, kind of lower middle class kind of family where, you know, we, we didn't grow up in abject poverty by any stretch. And we were myself and my three younger sisters were like really loved by my parents um, but, you know, my dad was a mechanic and, um, every time he got laid off, we would go on food stamps and, um, you know, I had free lunches at school. And so that was like a part of growing up was just, you know, going to four different grocery stores to hunt for deals with my mom. Every time we were in that kind of situation and always felt like, you know, we had to be careful and spend wisely and, um, be thoughtful about those things. Um, so I actually feel really, uh, I guess an extra dose of empathy for what a lot of people are going through but in terms of COVID and, and people getting laid off and, and furloughed from their jobs. And um, now the, you know, the problems that people are facing with food inflation and inflation in general uh, hits home. Um, but, you know, connecting that to something else, like when, um, you know, the ethos of Buffalo is that like uh, with four straight Super Bowl losses in the nineties, you know, people had to uh, stress eat um, chicken wings and, you know, other great Buffalo foods to (laughs) to deal with all that. Um, But jokes aside, like, um, you know, uh, obesity is really prevalent where I'm from and, um, and then kind of my family and circles kind of run in. And then with that, um, you know, strokes, um, 
uh, three of my aunts and uncles had strokes, you know, before they were in their mid fifties and, and my godmother and my aunt died of diabetes really young. Um, and a lot of cancer, a lot of, a lot of chronic disease, um, and a much shorter life expectancy than, you know, the averages in the U S. Um, but that just felt normal back then. It didn't feel normal after going to a place like Williams college and kind of, kind of seeing the rest of the country. Uh, so put a lot, it puts a lot into perspective. And I guess the last thing I'd say <laughs> that was a very defining element of my upbringing was that, you know, my mom actually used to run, uh, you know, a local kind of, um, version of something called diet workshop. It's kind of like Weight Watchers and she used to take me. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> uh, a number of like, you know, um, women in their thirties who are struggling with obesity, thirties and forties. Um, and it's definitely hear their story, hear their stories. And just like, it's, it's a very emotional thing. It's not just like a, it's not like this cold calculating clinical thing. Like a lot of like medicine feels like sometimes, or it used to feel like, I think it's gotten better. Um, but, but that kind of like gave me a real window into just how like much things like obesity and other things affect people's everyday life. It's, it's not just like going to the doctor once a year or when you have a problem. Uh, it's all those things plus how it makes you feel. So, um, and then lastly, like I, um, my, my grandmother, uh, lived with us when she, uh, passed away. I was with her when she died and, you know, I was in, you know, uh, kind of in my, preteen age and so that's like a very important experience when you're growing up and she you know smoked she's a bus driver uh her husband passed away when my dad was only 17 um so just like the weight of the world kind of on her shoulders and uh she, you know she survived like uh metastases in her brain and then you know uh kind of lived through a lot of agony frankly um living in our house but it was it was great to get that extra time with her but it was also really messy and just the way the healthcare system kind of handles that the way society was kind of juggling that um and that gave me kind of a lot of perspective too about you know the flaws with the healthcare system um and you know inspired me to just start volunteering at emergency rooms start to um you know get involved in, in healthcare and science uh, biology was my thing and really loved it growing up. Um, uh, but also loved athletics and, and, and a number of things, but, um, I just, uh, from an early age was like confronted, I guess, with mentors. Then when I started to go to the hospital that said, Hey, medicine's really messed up. It's great. <laughs> um, but don't think that being a doctor is like awesome and perfect. There's just so many systematic flaws that have built up. Um, and, uh, one, one mentor that I had was like, you know, you'd be better off being an engineer, um, than being a doctor if you want to really have impact on a lot of people in the system. And, um, yeah, I, what I took from that was like, Hey, you know, being a doctor, being a caregiver is actually really wonderful. And, and, and I, I love that today still. Um, uh, but it's also really gratifying if you can kind of step back and say, how can I fight through the systematic inertia, the politics, the the systematic technical issues to try to like make it better for both patients and people and families, as well as for providers who just want to do good work and help people. Uh, and that's definitely been a, uh, a key element of everything that I've done kind of since those experiences as a teenager. That's really, I mean, it's just, you know, um, it's interesting that you're at young age, I assume when you're young, you're not 
overweight or obese because you're in the crew team uh, being dragged into a obesity club. Uh, it must be quite an eye opening. And some of the story might be stuck in, with you. Yeah, no, it's funny, like to reflect on like my own body and health, like that was always like something uh, of kind of a lot of introspection about that. Um, I did a lot of like work um, later on in genetics and um, a lot of work in oncology. Um, but uh, it turns out that like, um, you know, uh, my mom and, and um, a couple of my sisters like have certain genes, uh, one that I also have because we did our 23andMe and I won't get into all the details, but like um, it actually affects women uh, and it doesn't affect men as an example. Um, and, you know, obesity, diabetes, like so many other problems on other extremes like ALS um, are usually multifactorial. Like it's a little bit of genetics, a little bit of environment. So again, you're in that environment where a lot of processed food um, and a lot of stressors and then a lot of, you know, certain genes, um, that then interact with hormones, um, you know, estrogen differently than testosterone. Like there's just a, an amazing amount of things that you can then see in hindsight where you're like, Oh, that's why it is why it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really lucky that like, while I definitely have genetics that say that I'm more likely to be obese, um, you know, huge kudos to my mom and that, that experience going to diet workshop with her where she, I would say we didn't have the best food coming into the house, but they, um, there was a lot of education, a lot of thought process. And so then as I got into athletics, um, you know, football, lacrosse crew, especially in college, which definitely teaches you to be disciplined with your body. Um, you know, I, I, you know, especially in college kind of took all the things that I didn't fully listen to my mom about (laughs) in high school. So I kind of survived with a really good metabolism and a lot of athletics. And then as I've gotten older, um, you know, it was actually what my mom taught me uh, or taught me to at least be curious about. And then I kind of learned on my own combined with all my coaches who, you know, trained you to be really disciplined. And I wish everybody in the world like had those kind of support structures. I mean, um, if we had, uh, if everybody had not just a primary care doctor, but a primary care dietitian, a primary care therapist, um, and athletics experiences, um, and families and, and education systems that gave them just a little bit more doses of these things, we'd all be a lot better off. Yeah, no, I think definitely, you definitely hear that more on, at least I heard it from social media, like Tom Brady, he's a vegetarian, but he came with a chef, with the nutritionist, all the coach. And so it was like, okay, of course you can have that resources, then it's to make, make it easier compared to somebody don't have that access to a lot of the expertise, like you're saying. So maybe, you know, can um, go back to, so you, you did uh, go to college, you learn a different environment, but, you know, you decide to still take the path of going to medicine, in, in, even though somebody's told you like you're better off being an engineer than being in medicine. Like why is that path? And then how is that transition from, all your work in a clinical, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I want to start a company instead of staying in medicine. Yeah. Um, yes, it's interesting. I was the first one to go to college in my extended family. Um, and, you know, the, the public high school they went to was great. I mean, it was actually a great education. Um, definitely like a suburban high school um, that was, you know, well-funded and had lots of AP classes and 
I just got a lot of opportunities. I remember going to visit private schools and being like, there was such a wealth gap and it felt like uncomfortable to me. I actually didn't go to private school specifically because I, the kids were talking about doing drugs and different things and leveraging wealth and it just made me uncomfortable. So I stayed in public school, but I was lucky to be in a place where public school is really good and it gave you at least the option to kind of excel. Um, but it was funny, like, you know, other than like a kid here or there that went to Harvard uh, and a bunch of kids that went to Cornell because it was also a state school. Like, I didn't even know what Yale and Princeton were. I mean, literally, like when I applied to college, it was still like in an era where it wasn't all online yet. And, um, you know, <laughs> my guidance counselors go to University of Buffalo. Um, but I but I got this like uh, book award from a place called Williams, which I'd never heard of. People were like, is that William and Mary? And I had no idea that it was like a good school or anything. Um, just didn't have a conception of it. Um, but I visited and I was like, man, I've been working really hard, like, you know, been working jobs, multiple clubs, like you know, playing music, like doing sports, like, you know, you know being a, a nerdy straight A kid. And, um, and I visited Williams and, and Harvard and, and Cornell and a bunch of places. And I was just like, wow, this place is like beautiful. And it feels kind of like, uh, it felt kind of like the movie with uh, the funny movie twins with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, where, like Arnold Schwarzenegger was like the good twin that got to like live on a Zen island. <laughs> like, like, Williamstown in the Berkshires feels kind of like that Zen island. I'm going to go there. And uh, man, it's like life-changing, right? Like for, like for so many kids, which is why I really appreciate how universities and elite universities, including Williams, are like working so hard to give kids opportunities, especially kids that come from like deeper poverty than even what I experienced. It's just so life-changing for not just that kid, but for the whole family. And so Williams is definitely the start of it. And then there were people at Williams who chose also to kind of be professors there instead of at like bigger research universities, but who had trained with like Nobel Prize winners. And I remember my one of my wonderful biology teachers, uh, Dr. Altshuler, she trained with a guy named Lee Hartwell at um you know, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Institute, who was a Nobel Prize winner and, you know, yeast DNA and genetics. And then, you know, she just like, hey, called her old mentor, Linda Breeden, and I went out there and um, who trained with Lee and uh, learned a ton, you know, just mm-hmm. like in a summer internship. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is all the cool stuff I read about uh, in, in high school biology. And now I was getting to do, you know, research just that exposure, it sets off like a cascade. And then so then I got to be at NIH for a summer with these like leading neuroscientists. And I kind of pivoted from cancer and genetics to kind of my, my big passion for neuroscience, because I always loved how, you know, the brain and, and the, the combination of emotion and psychology and, and then the actual hardwiring the brain and the mind works in the body. Um, and it's just awesome. And then the senior thesis I did was an amazing professor, Steve Zottoli, and so when, when all that was done and it was time to kind of think about, am I going to go to med school? That kind of voice in my head of that, that old mentor from the emergency room, um, by the way, that, that conversation where he told me you should be an engineer happened after a little boy, a two-year-old boy got run over by a car and, and passed away. It was the first time I saw anybody die like in real time. And he was the lead doc in the ER was my, my mentor was a really upset, angry, you know, and, and that's when he was telling me like, cause I was barely knew him, but he's, he's trying to control him. And he was like, Oh kid, you should better off being an engineer. Like this is silly. These problems could be prevented. And he would always point out all the things that like should never even come to the emergency room in the first place. 
And that public health orientation, even though he was not a public health doc, just always stuck with me. So I, I ended up applying for the Rhodes and uh, you know different things, and I was a finalist with the Rhodes Fellowship. Uh, but I remember, you know, back to my grandmother, like I got a question from a journalist who said, "What's your take on euthanasia?" And I said, "Well, uh, I think it's complicated." And I didn't give a straightforward like, "Hey, no, that's bad. It's a slippery slope." I said, "Well, I think it's complicated. Like, my I saw my." grandmother really suffer and i just think that like we probably need to rethink palliative care and uh i wasn't like advocating you know euthanasia straight out but i just it's complicated and mm-hmm. i don't think they liked that answer but i ended up um but i ended up getting a fellowship to go to cambridge where i had done a year abroad and so that was also a really defining experience i was in england for a year my junior year and i got to do medical school for a whole year in the middle of like williams college um and it was so different in england and there's such a NHS prevention orientation. So I picked up all those kind of things um, and already had a bunch of medical training um, coming back to Williams. Um, so I got this fellowship to go back and I was going to train with this Nobel Prize winner in neuroscience. But then my dad called me and said, um, you know what? Um, your sister, uh, who had a baby with your best friend when she was 15 and had the baby at 16, um, you need to get a job and send money over. <laughs> okay. So I, my dad had never really asked me for anything. My parents were always like, okay, you, you do great in school, you do your thing. Um, but it was the first time they ever really asked for anything. And so I, I switched gears and my friends from the crew team got me interviews at Bain and Mercer and these consulting firms back in the era where it was just like, yeah, you had a good GPA, they'll hire you. Um, so interviewed, got a job at Mercer. And that, which is now Oliver Wyman, that had you know, a huge and profound impact on, on being an entrepreneur. So I, I'd done some business stuff in school with thing called DECA. And I was like, oh, it's interesting. I got to like really meet people and other kids that like actually made me from a pure introvert into like a combined introvert extrovert. But, but it kind of gave me some confidence to go do this consulting thing. But it was actually consulting that kind of completely opened up my eyes to like how you scale things. So when I was consulting, I started teaching myself how to code and I took side classes on engineering. Um, and then I ended up, um, my team uh, on one of my projects uh, passed away uh, in 9-11. So I was, I was literally flying a day later to New York and um, I actually didn't um, because my team on the project uh, was in uh, the World Trade Center. So that was jarring. And I ended up pivoting to a different project um, in first um, the UK and, and before Australia um, for a pharmaceutical company, Bristol-Myers Squibb. And it was, uh, it was about redesigning clinical um, research processes around the world. And it was a lot about technology and systems. And so that kind of opened my eyes to like how you do things on a systems level, how organizations are built. I did a lot of org design work with it. And uh, it just completely changed my orientation to hey, you can, you can do research, you can do medicine, um, but if you really want to like have things change processes at scale, you also have to build a company. And this is how companies work. Um, and that was just like, like the beginning of the journey. And then what really kicked it off is that that inspired me to then do this fellowship um, that Oliver Wyman back then Mercer kind of helped support. Um, and I, uh, one of my bosses, um, a great guy, John LaRue, who now runs... Um, much of the kind of AARP, um, you know, medical pro- uh, programs. Um, he connected me to this guy, Josh Sharfstein, who used to be at FDA, who had trained under a guy named Barry Zuckerman, 
who is just a wonderful advocate for children, had co-founded Reach Out and Read and um, Health Leads and a number of wonderful kind of advocacy programs for kids and families. And, uh, you know, I, I was there to just help with some like EMR implementation and other things. But he said, as a side project, if you're really passionate about it, you can help create this pediatric obesity clinic, teaming up with him and, and this woman, uh, Carolina Povian from the Medical Weight Loss Program, who's like a wonderful leader in that space. That was just an amazing kind of entrepreneurial experience, like mm-hmm. helping like a, an esteemed health systems, but one that really helped low income families, uh, you know, put something like that together. One of my jobs was just enrolling people in Medicaid and SNAP, a back then called food stamps. So then we kind of applied that logic to these kids and families, which are almost all on Medicaid, um, and uh, help them kind of create these kind of personalized kind of grocery lists that they could afford um, on their food stamps budget, but that also fit their cultural preferences, their language and recipe preferences. And we just took a more gradual, gentle process, and we were really effective at reversing insulin resistance in those kids um, mm-hmm. at that uh, obesity clinic because we just focused on the little things of like daily and weekly life within their budget. And that was really the culmination of all the things that I've talked about. I was like, hey, you can build things like this. And then ne- the next phase became how do you scale them with technology? This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, what is FoodSmart? What does it do? Sure. Um, so uh, so the Nutrition and Fitness for Life program at Boston Medical Center absolutely was the inspiration for sure, um, together with like all the things I shared about just my background and seeing kind of what food insecurity um, and uh, chronic disease related to obesity kind of does to families and communities. Um, and then seeing what it really does for people in true poverty and a lot of families at Boston Medical Center, you know, living in Mattapan, living in Dorchester and Roxbury, like they're in much deeper poverty than what I experienced. And it's just really profound. I mean, kids that are like literally drinking soda and chips as their primary meals. It's just, and it's not, by the way, just about obesity. That's about frank developmental delay. And I don't think people in the country like have a full... Uh, consciousness of like the amount of developmental delay that happens with kids in this country fundamentally related to like inappropriate nutrition. It's a variant of malnutrition with, it's not just obesity engendering, it's like literally prevents effective brain development. And we are growing a massive population of people uh, who are kids that never had a full chance. So it, it, it brought all these kind of things that I was connected to into much deeper focus. Um, it proved to me that at small scale, you know, if you pull the right elements together, a behaviorist, um, a dietitian, um, you know, an endocrinologist, and you get really deep with the daily life and weekly life things, you can fix problems with lifestyle. And it wasn't like cancer, which, you know, it wasn't incurable. Uh, and it didn't require crazy science. It required, you know, like sitting with families and actually making a plan and making it 
personalized and specific and fit their budget. And, and doctors didn't have time for that. Um, they would always say like, this is amazing. I just, but I don't, I don't, I, I'm told not to do that because I have to do 15 to 30 minute visits. There's no reimbursement codes. It's very complicated. And so they kind of saying like, if you could build tools that would just like deliver like a food script to people's door, like this Amazon thing that's delivering books. I mean, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it was like uh, 22 years ago. Um, then, you know, you really can change the system. Um, there's just so much I didn't know. I wish I had all kinds of different mentors when I was younger because, you know, I would have I would have learned to code in um, high school if I could have. And I would have I would have like, you know, built those tools right there. But I was like building tools on macros and then learning while I was in consulting, like, um, you know, a PHP and a LAMP stack and then started to code. And then when I went to Duke, um, I had no idea, no mentorship, no structure whatsoever on how to approach it. But Duke was just starting up this like, you know, entrepreneurial club, which is really cool. Um, and then, again, having no idea what I was doing, I was like, I both created this like company called Fitnet, a little LLC that started like, and I started hacking together software and doing things and um, met a you know, wonderful uh, woman named Emma Bunetch from Romania. And, and we she and she was at Duke doing her PhD uh, in comp sci. And we kind of built this little thing and she introduced me to friends of hers in Bucharest. Um, and then we hired them to kind of help build out some of the next versions. And then I created this nonprofit called Fitness Forward and went to Coach K. Um, just like, hey, can can we do this thing for kids where it was kind of like the Book It program where you get stars for reading books, like where we can give kids and their parents points when they do different healthy behaviors, like no sugar out of beverages and five to nine fruits and vegetables. And we printed out these little Scantron scorecards and had a little web and mobile app and all these different things. And it was very effective in Durham and we spread it to Boston and a bunch of states around the US. And that was like, a that just like helped me start to cut my teeth on being an entrepreneur, but in like a really lightweight uh, way. I don't know about the lightweight. It feels like you've, you, you have a lot of uh, interaction with amazing people. I mean, nobody can know everything, but the, the time that you are, I feel like you've done many things. You're a road finalist, you do your crew and, You've worked with some Nobel Prize. I think you've done quite a bit. So go back to your Food Smart. Um, so tell us more. Do you and part of the Food Food Smart is like you, you help the the patient or the member to have a better access to nutritional uh, food, and also do you also do help with delivering the nutritional food, the grocery list, including where you can buy the grocery. How do you make their life easier, especially for the food stamp uh, uh, family who benefit from the food stamp? A good question. It's definitely been an interesting journey. So I actually, um, when I was at Duke, I, I went to the chancellor and asked for help, like investing in kind of FitNet and Fitness Forward and advice. And he and he actually, the way he helped me is he said, hey, let's start a different company together. And I won't get into all that detail, but... We ended up then co-founding a company called Preventus, um, and we were personalized cancer decision support with the National Conference of Cancer Network. Amy Abernathy, I hired to be our first CMO, and she went on to do amazing things with Flatiron and and the FDA. But I learned so much from Dr. Snyderman, Amy, um, you know, uh, and then um, the the former CEO uh, of of Kaiser was on our board and the former chief strategy officer McKesson. So it was just like a crazy amount of learning 
but I was the CTO and co-founder. So all so I kind of had put you know both FitNet and Fitness Forward on hold, um, and then I uh, I actually met school on hold, and then I ended up going when I kind of reintegrated back into finishing my MD. I went to Harvard School of Public Health uh, on a fellowship because David Gergen, a wonderful guy, was on the Duke board, and they had this first year of a social entrepreneurship fellowship. Um, so I went up. I was in, in kind of quantitative methods, nutritional epi. But I was also going to the Kennedy School, kind of learning how do you build companies, for-profit or non-profit, to have their focus be on impact, not their focus just on returns. And it's incredible, like, like learning experience. Also, I met my wife at this wonderful conference that David took us to um, with a bunch of non-profit leaders like Wendy Kopp and others. Um, so I'm really glad for that. Um, my wife is amazing and runs a nonprofit called Your Health Exchange. But but I'm sharing all that because like if I hadn't had those experiences, it wouldn't have taught me how to go back and kind of build up FitNet the right way and turn it into then what became called Zapongo. And so then the Zapongo journey was um, you know, met my co-founder Milo Krastev uh, from my best friend from college. They were working together at. at uh, value at capital. And Milo is amazing. He has a, he got an 800 as math SAT. He's a, uh, immigrant from Bulgaria. Didn't speak a lick of English when he was 14. Came to LA Unified Schools. Um, also kind of similar economic background as me. Learned English, became a division one soccer player at Georgetown. And then just as this amazing mathematical mind. And then when we were first getting Sapongo going, we changed the name for Fitna to Sapongo. You know, we were feeling our way, um, in an era that, startups were really starting to blossom again in San Francisco. And it was really fun. And so we first created um, kind of this like almost like a lose it, my fitness pal app. But then we realized that all the impact was coming from the nutrition pieces of it uh, in terms of chronic disease. So we narrowed Zapongo's focus to be on nutrition. But our first instant station was a, a B2C direct to consumer kind of app that was like Groupon for healthy groceries. Um, and that worked really well. The problem was the way it had to make money was through advertising from the food manufacturers. And that became very uncomfortable very quickly because we would say, well, we'll pick these foods. And they said, no, 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 this is the one budgets. You got to pick these foods. And it's like, well, that's not our nutrition criteria. It doesn't work. So we dropped that model. And then um, Milo actually went off to Palantir. He got recruited away um, by some of the early leadership there and had an amazing kind of set of experiences there. I ended up joining Rock Health. um, And then um, this wonderful guy, Aaron Stortz, um, came to meet a bunch of the Rock Health crew, and he was at Google uh, running kind of wellness. He introduced us to the Google kind of team, and then Google became our first really big customer. We'd actually done a Medicaid pilot study with AmeriHealth, and it went really well, um, but it was really hard to get paid by Medicaid uh, plans back then. But Google said, you know, we'll, we'll pay you um, a good amount uh, of money. And then we started to really build um, the personalized meal planning um, and uh, the integration into kind of the grocery and restaurant and meal kit ecosystem, um, you know, uh, but only as software uh, in mm-hmm. the early days because white collar workers, like they crave software and tools, right? right. Like, they all have their own cafeteria also. So I almost feel like, well, exactly. And you know what? That's where we got so much of our engagement at Google because everybody opened up the menu on food, on what was called Zapongo back then on the app. Mm-hmm. And it was before Google had built out all of their own internal tools um, on the the digital menus. They kind of relied on the, the groups like Compass and, and others. And so we had this window where like people would come in every day to like Zapongo 
uh, there and at other places. And then we had this, you know, great uh, relationship with Compass integrating with the menus and we guided people to kind of pick healthier choices with that. Then we added integrations with all the grocers um, over time. And then we pulled in discounts from the grocers. And that was our first foray into kind of expanding from white collar populations to blue collar populations because my North Star has always been to have this be serving kind of uh, middle and lower income populations, not just kind of another kind of a white collar program that people subscribe to with their their extra income. And and so we kind of flash forward. So the journey to the Food Smart of today and kind of rebranding from Zapongo to Food Smart was that we wanted to support Medicaid members. We wanted to support Medicare members, just like that early study with AmeriHealth and the work at Boston Medical Center. Um, but to do that, we had to be a telemedicine company. We had to be a telenutrition company because health plans, as we started to cross over into kind of from employers um, to kind of the ASO kind of parts of big health plans like United, um, we realized that now you're serving blue collar workers um, and they need extra support beyond just like the apps. But now when you're trying to help Medicaid and Medicare members, like the apps are helpful. Um but, but the RD is the Sherpa, uh, is the person that like helps you set up the grocery list online. And once you set it up, it's life-changing because people keep using those screens forever. So we shut off all the ads from the manufacturers, kind of like when you subscribe to Pandora or Spotify. Um, think of us like a kayak or a, an Orbitz layer over kind of grocery. And now today, over 300,000 restaurants, over meal kit companies, over medically tailored meal companies, we have kind of every way of eating kind of in our foods mart. But it took many years to kind of build all that out. Um, and today, now, it's about establishing a primary care dietitian relationship with a Medicaid member or a Medicare Advantage member, finding all the resources to support that person, like if they're, especially if they're food insecure. Um, do you have your EBT card? Did you, you need to re-enroll? Is there a food card program with, from ARPA money or from, funded by CalAIM and medically tailored meals money? Um, is there a medically tailored meal that you qualify for because you're post-discharge CHF or you're diabetic or fill in the blank? Are there other resources? What about price comparison? Since you can save 10, 20, 30, $40 if you go to this grocer and so this grocer on this week. What about the coupon stacking, like our version of extreme couponing? So we do all that SDOH, food insecurity, food inflation, economics work first. We front load that. We get people set up with the infrastructure because our RDs and care coordinators are first and foremost, customer support, tech support. It's like a flipped classroom. And then when you've got the infrastructure set up, now it's just like a machine and you can just like have a relationship with the, the family and the and human beings and say, let's go on a journey. Let's respect the way you eat today, culturally, and just your local family kind of food culture. But then let's look at the things that are driving your obesity or driving your uh, diabetes, like, oh, wow, a lot of soda, no judgment let's try flavored club soda. Um, and instead of getting an ad from the food manufacturer, they get a little nudge or a reminder that's like club soda or how about this brand? How about this type? How about this type? And then when you find something that catches, all of a sudden you kind of roll with it. And that's kind of the food smart of today. It's, it's fee-for-service telenutrition, but in working with the payers, it's also trying to kind of bundle up value-based food care where we make it easier for the health plans uh, especially Medicaid plans and Medicare Advantage plans, uh, to say like, okay, how do I look holistically at the registered dietitians, the tools and the software of the Food Smart and the Food Smart, uh, and the medically tailored meals and the grocery incentives that I outlay? How do I bring all that together? 
nothing that's really uh, impactful, I can imagine. You know, usually I'm just, of course, assuming that people who does the grocery is the mother. Not only that the mother has to work, they have to take care of the kids, they have to do grocery. Having a grocery list, things that make their life easier, and then you don't have to go different shopping places to compare prices. That also adds time and costs. Moving from one grocery to another, you have to drive around to find a better deal. That is, uh, if you can reduce all that, that makes everybody's life easier. So last question before we let you go. Uh, uh, what are the major lessons learned doing the food smart that you can, that you did not know that you, now you feel like, oh, that if I had to do it all over again, maybe I would do it differently. Yeah, so many, so many. Um, Just it's, funny, it's funny, like um, I'm on the, I'm on a couple of boards, like the board of Partnership Healthy America and the board of a startup called Synapticure with my friend who has ALS, which has been uh, a hard journey, but just that he and his wife, Brian Wallach and Sandra Abrabai are amazing. Um, but it's it's funny sitting now like as a board member and helping somebody start a new company. I mean, I wish I knew all the things that I knew um, back when I started FoodSmart because I would have just started a telemedicine company earlier it's easy to say that now. COVID made so many things easier, uh, no doubt. A snap online, telemedicine you can use for people on Medicare. But nonetheless, I still would have done so many things differently. I've learned so many lessons from people like Glenn Tullman and Frank Williams on our board and, and Jeff Margolis and other people who, on how they do fundraising, how they organize the company, how they attract the right talent. Um, but fundamentally in digital health, I think... Um, there were a lot of investors in the era that I was kind of revving up um, Zapongo that kind of pushed on applying models that worked in other parts of tech, like, you know, high growth ARR with super high margins like SaaS. And I think we we overdid that. And if I had like stuck to kind of my core and my roots earlier with telehealth and made it telehealth from the get-go, um, I think we would be a lot further faster. But it's okay. I mean, like it's a journey and, and I've learned so much. And I think we're in a wonderful position to help uh, a lot of people. We help a million and a half people today and over 750 companies. But we want to support at least 10 million people in the next couple of years. And we hope that in the next decade, we can help 100 million people, um, but also be just good stewards of helping shape the food as medicine industry and contributors to kind of like the, the telehealth revolution in general. So it, it's a privilege to kind of like be kind of in the, doing this kind of work. It's really cool. No, it's really impressive. It's like what you do is so important and I really appreciate your hard work in this space. But thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you, Christine. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.